Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. This is a special rebroadcast of our inaugural Rumi Rounds episode, where we discuss the communication barriers that currently exist between patients and their rheumatologists. Head to AIarthritis.org slash Rounds for more great episodes from this series and opportunities to join the conversation. That's AIarthritis.org slash Rounds. Pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. We're so happy to have you joining us at the table today. We have a special episode. We're doing a, a, a pilot episode here, testing out a new series we hope to launch and keep it going strong called Roomy Rounds. My name is Tiffany. I am co-hosting today with Kelly. Kelly, why don't you say hello? Hello, everybody. And uh, Kelly and I are both co-founders at the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. So we are also people living with these diseases. I myself am diagnosed uh, now. <laughs> Which time with non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Pryor's seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, lupus has been thrown in there before, Sjogren's, all kinds of things. Um, but Kelly, you also have diagnoses, uh, sort I, of. I, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think right now they have it listed as rheumatoid arthritis, but I've had psoriatic arthritis, lupus has, I was called lupus light for a while. I don't know what that meant, but it's like diet Coke, I guess. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, so now we're, I'm sticking with rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, Graves disease, uh, just a hot mess over here. Oh, okay. There you go. Lots All right. Of stuff. Well, before I talk a little bit more about what these roomy rounds are, let's meet our guests today. We have a, a, a couple people joining us. One is Dr. Alfred Kim, who is my rheumatologist. Hey, Dr. Kim. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and then we also have Jarek. And I, gosh darn it, Jarek. I don't, oh, the, how do you say your last name? I didn't ask before we started. Oh, it's all right. It's Leong. Leong. All right. And we have Jarek Leong. And Kelly's going to tell you a little bit more about their backgrounds. Okay. Well, Dr. Alfred Kim is an assistant professor of medicine and of pathology and immunology at Washington University School of Medicine. He also founded and directs the Washington University Lupus Clinic. Dr. Kim's research group is focused on addressing the unmet needs of the human systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE, including understanding and leveraging of the biomarker potential of complement activation products, testing novel non-invasive imaging platforms such as photoacoustics to detect lupus nephritis, understanding the relationship between sleep quality and lupus activity, and restoring eroded social support in patients with SLE. Welcome to Dr. Kim. Thank you. Welcome. So next we have Jarek Leung. Jarek is a graduate student in the Master of Public Health program at St. Louis University, College for Public Health and Social Justice, focusing in behavioral science and health education. He's been involved with lupus-related health research for the past four years, beginning during his time as an undergraduate student at Washington University, where he met Dr. Kim and conducted a senior thesis project in medical anthropology, seeking to understand the primary obstacles of living with lupus from the patient perspective. This work and the necessity of the patient voice in guiding research and treatment priorities has formed the basis of Jarek's current work with Dr. Kim and Dr. Elizabeth Baker, who is a professor of behavioral science and health education also at St. Louis University. 
They're working on understanding and developing interventions related to social support and impact on quality of life among those living with lupus using a community-based approach. After graduate school, Jarek intends to continue on in a career path in health sciences research with a specific focus in autoimmune diseases. So welcome to Jarek as well. Thank you. Welcome and yay to the specific focus on autoimmune diseases. I have to do a Very quick shout exciting. out to that. Um, so I'm going to circle back really quick and and tell everybody a little bit about the vision here of of Rumi Rounds and and how it came to fruition. Uh, we have patients that we ask to submit topics for podcasts, and a lot of patients submitted the need for communication improvement between the patient and the rheumatologist. There were a lot of different subcategories that came up. And it was that moment that we said, wow, there's so much that needs to be improved. Maybe we could do a whole series called Rumi Rounds. And the whole concept of Rumi is, first of all, because patients call their rheumatologists roomies, but it also is a word that envelops the entire rheumatology community. And that could include researchers, that could include other doctors that work with the researchers. So we're trying to keep the scope broad so that we can include all of the relevant topics. This series would be aimed at improving communications between patients and rheumatologists and people in the rheumatology community. And the concept really mimics the way that we work at our nonprofit, which includes patients who use our professional backgrounds to facilitate conversations between various stakeholders and a global pool of patients. And those are people like us living with autoimmune or autoinflammatory diseases that include arthritis as a major clinical component. We also like to host these kinds of conversations because different viewpoints are vital (laughs) to problem solving. And we like to say at IFAA that we are problem solvers. So in order to do that efficiently, you have to have all parties at the table and listen to those different viewpoints and invite other people after these conversations to then submit comments so that all voices and perspectives are considered. And then essentially we develop solutions and resources that matter most to everyone. See how that works? Isn't that fantastic? So that is how Rumi Rounds was envisioned, and we welcome you to the first episode. Today's topic is improving patient Rumi communication with typically patients talk to each other about what's important to us in choosing or keeping, in some cases, the right rheumatologist, which often revolves around how our expectations are at the visit, were they met, were they not met, but do our expectations align with the doctor's goals for the visit? Hmm, I don't know. Well, what's interesting about this today is that we do have Dr. Kim to give some insight on his perspectives, knowing he's one doctor. (laughs) So he will give some insights on that. But we also have Jarek, and Jarek is conducting some participating in, what should I say? Participating in leading, what's the right word? Um, Conducting. Conducting. So Jarek is conducting research into this very topic. So not only do we have a conversation going, but we have some research to back it up. And we know all of you doctors listening out there like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I think the, the framing of this podcast actually hits on the point of the exact point that we saw is that the kind of the expectation or the goals of the patient didn't always align with the goals or expectations of the physician or that whoever's treating whoever, whatever type of healthcare provider you're seeing for your uh, condition. And so 
you know, it could be, it's one of the more common things that we heard was specifically about medications and side effects. So if I'm a patient, I'm saying that I, I you know, I'm coming in for a three month follow-up after a medication change. And I'm telling the physician that, you know, I've had stomach issues or I've had food sensitivities since I started on this medication, but the physician might tell you, Hey, that's not supposed to happen. Um, I don't know why that's happening. Or they'll say like, you know, that's not supposed to happen and move on or something like that. That, right. that specific interaction is kind of encapsulates kind of what we heard. That's the main, um, the main crux. The other thing about this is when we're talking about going into the offices, we hear a lot of things online. And so it could be, well, I did this medication and it worked. Or, you know, I tried this and it worked. Or, or my roomie does this and my room. So we hear a lot. And I think we carry what we hear from other people living with these diseases to the office as well. And I think all of that is a, is our stepping stones to breaking open the discussion about our expectations, the rheumatology expectations. Uh, and if we don't understand those going in, how are we really going to solve the entire problem of communication? So in saying that, I know myself as a person living with these diseases, I, Dr. Kim is my rheumatologist, <laughs> Thank, but I sought him out. <laughs> so uh, I had uh, a lot of trouble getting a diagnosis originally back in 2009 is when I got my first diagnosis. But then after that, I moved to Phoenix and it all started over. And, uh, and then that's when I, I was re-diagnosed with non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis in the first place. But then I moved to St. Louis and I did something foolish. People out there living with these diseases, you should never do this. I didn't research my doctor. And I just went with what it, my insurance provider suggested and she ended up telling me there's nothing wrong with me, refused my medication and I started flaring tremendously. Um, needless to say, I did walk out of that office. And then I started researching and I found Dr. Kim. <laughs> so I handpicked him. And I remember I had to apply and he had to accept me. And I don't know, are, 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 you, are you having regrets now? <laughs> no comment. No, I'm joking. It's wonderful to have you, actually. So as we we toggle this into the the rheumatology offices, I'm just curious. We you know we've talked a little bit about what patients expect, and we'll we'll circle back with that. But Dr. Kim, you know what what do what are the doctors' expectations when seeing a patient? I know it varies if they're a new patient versus if you've seen them a while or the the variation of of their disease. So it's kind of a loaded question, but. What are your thoughts about the expectations of rheumatologists in general? What do you what are your goals when when we leave that visit? Right. So I think the most important goal for us is to determine what's actionable, right? So is the information that we obtain from you during the medical interview and the physical exam sufficient to be able to then say, okay, there are certain laboratory tests that we need to order. Um, are there imaging studies? Or are there other uh, studies that need to be done in order to either support or rule out certain diagnoses? So we think of this as a very medical thing. Mm -hmm. And in preparation for this, we do, and the most important thing we do is review other physician records that have been sent to us. And I think you use a phrase, starting over, which is very, uh, Tiffany, because this is very common 
I think that especially in rheumatology, rheumatology is a kind of a unique discipline in the sense that to me it's like psychiatry. Um, there's no lab test for bipolar disease. There's no lab test for depression. There's no mm -hmm. lab test for anxiety. These are clinical diagnoses. Virtually all of the diagnoses in rheumatology are also clinical. But what ends up happening is that a lot of physicians overinterpret the meaning of a positive test. Okay. If you're positive ANA, they say, oh, you tested positive for lupus. Actually, that is that actually sets the patient up for a potential conflict with the next provider that sees them that's trying to interpret what that positive ANA means, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I think the most important thing, and this is true for all physicians, is that reviewing the medical record gives us an idea of, okay, what can we, what are we pretty sure of? What do I need to confirm in the visit? What is, and for me, and I guess everyone may be different, I'm trying to also understand what could be the potential mindsets of the patient as we start discussing the possibility that a certain diagnosis may not be right, or uh, if the patient doesn't feel like they have that diagnosis, it actually may be right. And so we have to make sure that we're prepared for that conversation, mm -hmm. right? But to do um, this, the extent of starting over, is, I think this is very frustrating for patients because you seem like you're answering the same questions over and over and over again. But a lot of this is making sure that the physician actually put it in the record right the first time. <laughs> and this doesn't happen all the time, it, right? No, it doesn't. And it, it, it one of the very interesting things, I know, Kelly, you had mentioned that one of the expectations of going into the doctor's office is strongly based on treatments often and getting on the right treatments. And I know for myself that there has been situations where to get the medication that is best for me or deemed would be best for me or has worked best for me, there's been have changing to say, oh, well, you might have to put on rheumatoid arthritis in order to get access to that. And when that happens, my charts go to the next doctor and then it doesn't have the right diagnosis on it. And that is happening a lot as well. So this whole idea that, uh, and I don't maybe you could weigh in on this a little bit, Dr. Kim. One of the things that patients have mentioned is that, well, my rheumatologists say it doesn't matter what treatment you're on because it's all, they're all treated the same. It, you know, you're always going to start on X biologic or, you know, a DMART or whatever the, the journey is, but it doesn't really matter because it's, it's all the same. So it doesn't matter what I necessarily diagnose you with. Well, let's just get you a diagnosis. We hear that a lot. And what are, what are your thoughts on that? Because it, it, our interpretation, patients feel that a true diagnosis is very important. <laughs> so could you, do you have any thoughts on, on that as far as yeah. that's our expectation? I think for 99% of diseases that are out there, the diagnosis is critically important. In rheumatology, I think what's really strange, and this took me a while for me to accept as a trainee, as a fellow here, is that the symptoms are actually supersede the diagnosis in the sense that if you have inflammatory arthritic pain, so in an autoimmune etiology for arthritis pain, say in your fingers, regardless of what the diagnosis is, the treatment actually is relatively the same. And what's strange about our conditions is that I think we still practice because we don't have uh, the laboratory test to give us the granularity to be able to understand that a certain symptom is because of a certain disease. All we can do 
is say, okay, their symptoms are consistent with an inflammatory arthritis that's most likely autoimmune in origin. We've confirmed with some lab tests and we've confirmed with some radiographs. And regardless of that underlying diagnosis, it gets treated the same. Now, I don't think physicians do a good job of explaining that to their patients. Again, mm-hmm. going back to communication. Communication, right. Pat <laughs> <laughs> myself on the back. But I, you know, this is a real issue, and we can go into kind of the barriers for this later, but I, this is the single prime most big, the biggest complaint that we see. Actually, you know, when we first met Tiffany, mm-hmm. um, going through your chart, I knew there was some incredible utter confusion that you were experiencing, <laughs> right? Even though we had never discussed because I was confused too, mm-hmm. right? But so what ended up happening was like, I just need to understand what symptoms we have regardless of the diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? And really use that as the basis. And I remember when we first talked, I was like, we, met, we actually had this discussion, I'm not yeah. sure what you're diagnosed with, but the bottom line is that you have these symptoms. And based off these symptoms, then there's actually these medicines. Yes. So it, it is different than cancer, for example. The diagnosis, the tissue, you know, which organ, the, the cell type that's affected, really important, right? But in rheumatology, we're, we're so far from that. So that is, it's confusing. I, I totally get why it's confusing for, for patients. The, uh, the other thing, just as a summary too, you said in the very beginning when you were talking about, when we started talking about this topic, that the expectations of the doctors, I mean, really based on clinical, right? I mean, that makes sense. You're the, you're the doctor. And I think that a lot of when patients walk in, it's emotional. And when you've got clinical versus emotional, those are very different dynamics. Right. So actually... I, I pulled up this quote by uh, Dr. Kenneth Robinson. So he's president and CEO of the United Way of the Mid-South. And he actually made this comment that 80% of health outcomes are determined by social determinants, 20% through medical care. So social determinants, just for the audience, is essentially the variables of how your living situation, your working situation influences your health. So this could be income and wealth, power that, you know, at work, but also social support, education, employment status, addiction, disability, all of these variables, there's, you know, there, there are dozens of these that influence health. So physicians, as classically trained, we actually don't know how to address social determinants. We know how to address the medical aspects. But so I think this is where Dr. Robinson's quote is so, it, is, it strikes very deeply um, in terms of how we uh, execute medicine in 2020 is that we are, the physicians are still largely stuck in that 20%, largely because that's what we're trained in. Right. Most clinics, and certainly me, prior to meeting Jarek, I was totally ill-prepared to deal with social determinant issues, discrepancies, you know, disparities in that. So this is, I think, uh, kind of one of the things I'm trying to, we're trying to fix within our own lupus clinic is, you know, how do we address these disparities and social determinants in order to improve outcomes? So the, the way that I've heard a lot of people talk about this and what I found helpful, um, I think that what Al brought up with the, the 8%, 20%, that's a good way to think about it. But in addition to that, it's maybe upstream and downstream. So what the, the care that you get from someone like Dr. Kim at a rheumatologist's office, that's something that's very, it's proximal, it's very close to, to you as a patient. There's immediate change. But the social determinants, you can think of them more as upstream from the health outcome because the, 
the care that the treatments that you get from a doctor, there was, those are going to have like an immediate health outcome, but fixing or addressing something that's more upstream, it might not have immediate health outcomes, but it's still, it's kind of like the medium by which, the medium in which medical care happens. And it's be foolish to ignore it, to keep ignoring it. Um, and also the, the second thing is that Dr. Kim mentioned this, this um, how, do, how do we then integrate the concern for social determinants in the medical setting? And some things that maybe you two are familiar with that are, I think are more popular in rural settings and primary care is this idea of a medical home. So, or integrated care, just something like having, having different services that might be most necessary at a given visit that you can, that, um, as a patient, say, if you have trouble, you're having trouble registering for Medicaid or something like that, there's going to be someone on site at your visit to help you do that. Or if you don't have transportation, the clinic is going to facilitate your transportation. Or if um, there's a behavioral health person on staff for the clinic to take on, you know, uh, what they call warm handoffs for behavioral health, like anxiety, depression. So same care that day in the same facility. Um, so that type of thing, I think, is something that the lupus clinic is, uh, it's a goal that the lupus clinic is probably aspiring towards, is having this medical home type of setup. I know, I know that that is something that, Kelly, you've talked about in some of your blog articles, too, that that is a, that is a desire of expectations to be to have a whole community working together in addition to uh, the primary conversation between the specialists, et cetera. Right. You wanted to expand on that. Sure. Well, I did have a, an experience where, you know, I have several conditions with several different types of doctors. I have a rheumatologist, a gynecologist, a uh, endocrinologist. So in going to all of those people, most of my doctors were in the same medical system. My primary doctor, unfortunately, was not. So I don't think I realized how important it is to have that consistency of everybody being on the same page. And again, this is going back maybe, I don't know, 10 or more years, maybe a little less. Um, my blood pressure was up and my rheumatologist expressed concern. And I would go to my doctor and his physician's assistant would say, no, it's fine. My endocrinologist was concerned. And again, so it kept happening. And so prior to going on a new biologic, I knew one of the side effects was going to be increased blood pressure. It, that was a risk. And they had talked to me at my rheumatologist office about that being a risk. As a result, I made an appointment to try and be proactive. I met with my general practitioner's physician's assistant because I couldn't get in to see him. And he basically said, if we put you on any more blood pressure medicine, you will pass out. So I, I left feeling very defeated and I left feeling sure that I was right, that there was a problem. And I was very defeated in the sense that he didn't hear me, but I, you know, I'm not a professional. I I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a physician's assistant. So I trusted him. I had been with the practice for a long time. Well, the day I went in for the infusion, my blood pressure was 160 over 110 and my rheumatologist, who I swear is my angel, literally, I'm in a building where there are several specialties, and she took me by the hand and walked me next door to the cardiologist. 
Although I liked my general practitioner, I needed everybody to be within the same system. So having that idea of a, a home, I changed general practitioners. All of my doctors are in the same system and I'm lucky. I'm near a major city, amazing hospitals. Uh, it, it, there's teaching hospitals. So we have a lot of research going on. We have a lot of stuff that happens in this area. So I'm one of the lucky ones and I'm very aware of that. But I think, you know, like I said, if I go and tell a doctor that something's really wrong and I end up in the hospital as a result because what I said wasn't listened to, then you're not going to be the doctor for me. And unfortunately, you know, I did end up in the hospital and it was a very serious situation and I had some permanent damage from that. So I've learned and through that tried to express to other patients that you really have to advocate because I think, you know, like you were saying, there's total different, there's different expectations when a patient goes to a doctor as opposed to when a doctor walks in. And I think when, um, you know, a lot of patients get nervous, there's the whole white coat syndrome. And that's what I was told for the longest time was the reason why my blood pressure was so high. My general practitioner's person kept telling me, oh, you have white coat syndrome. You just get nervous when they take your blood pressure. So again, we've already talked a little bit about the goal that, you know, our doctors have when we walk in versus the goal we have that we walk in. Is there any way that we can maybe pull them together a little bit more? Any suggestions? I know through my blog, I've written down, you know, you go to the rheumatologist, you might not be flaring. You look great. Your blood work looks great. So document along the way. I, I take pictures of my joints when they swell because sometimes I can't believe how bad they are. I write down the days that I don't feel well. I try and give her as much information as possible because she insists I don't complain enough. And I insist, I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. But yet when they see me and my joints are so big, yeah, it does get that bad. So I think that communication piece is really, really key in knowing what to sort of talk about. My doctor and I have a really good relationship. Uh, I always tell her she's never allowed to retire or leave me. Um, because my last one did retire and left me and I, it was a struggle as Tiffany said, trying to find somebody. I also had someone who told me there's nothing wrong with you. And I said, Oh, well, if there's nothing wrong with me, why are all of my joints swollen and red? And he said, I don't know. I was like, uh, okay, well, um, you're not the doctor for me, but again, none of us really want to have anything wrong with us. So the talk about, you know, none of us really want a diagnosis, even though we do want the diagnosis. We just want to know what's wrong with us. We want to be able to explain it to other people. And I think the social piece with friends and family is since we can't always explain what's wrong with us, it's hard for them to understand maybe what we need. And I think that is a piece. Dr. Kim, do you have anything to add to that? I, I think you bring up something that's really challenging for physicians is that so particularly in psychiatry, in rheumatology, and also other disciplines where we have to... So I think the toughest job that we do is that we have to take the colloquial coming from the patient, mm -hmm. translate that to technical so that we can apply what we've learned medically, which is taught technically, and then translate it back to colloquial to be able to have you guys as patients understand what the full intent of what we mean. And oftentimes that skill is, I think, oftentimes implied that it's going to occur during medical training. Mm. Oh, no. You know, I, I can't actually think of any work that we've done when I was in medical school or even residency where we actually talked about when a patient says this, what, what are you, how are you interpreting that, right? And I think this is also goes down to how good of a physician that he or she is 
is being able to say, you know what, I need to work with much more granularity on what was just said in order for that piece of information to be actionable, right? Okay. And I don't know, there are, there, there, I don't know how well this is done globally by physicians. I think this is something that I sometimes see some of our, especially young residents, um, they just, they interpret what the patient says the way they want it to because they're time constraints, right? And sometimes you, you have to back up and say, listen, I'm not actually 100% sure that's what they meant. And I do have to say, I think the time constraint is a big thing and that's driven more by the industry and insurance than it is by, you know, a doctor wanting to take the time. I, my rheumatologist, I wait at least 20 to 35, sometimes up to an hour to get in. And I know so many people get upset and I don't get upset because I know she's actually listening to people. And the one day she came in on time and I was like, what's wrong? Why are you here on time? That doesn't happen. Um, But I don't get upset about that because I do see that as being, she's listening. And she's taking the time to explain. And and I do think, you know, as being someone who, you know, all through school, I, I'll, I'll be working and I'm like, you know what? I wasn't prepared for this in college. I don't remember that day they mentioned that this is how you have to explain things to a client. So it does make sense. I think there's um, a lot to be said for, you know, you have to learn things. And I think the communication piece as a speech language pathologist, I mean, that's my area of specialty. You know, reading between the lines is a very difficult thing. And that patient relationship, like Tiffany said, patients tend to be more emotional and that can make getting your stuff across very difficult. That's why I really do recommend that patients document their concerns along the way uh, and almost coaching them on how to be a patient. Dr. Kim, do you have anything else to yeah. add to that? I just want to add something about the time issue because as physician visits are being cut shorter, right, it becomes a lot harder to be able to extract out you know, meaningful information from patients sometimes because, you know, oftentimes it, it is emotional and that needs to be expressed, all right? But what ends up happening, especially for physicians who are deeply empathic, is that because there's so many patients now that are seen during a, a day, that actually causes emotional burnout for the provider, all right? And, you know, add that with EM, electronic medical record burnout, mm-hmm. right? I think, you know, one of the biggest problems that we're seeing within our industry generally is, is, is wellness, mindfulness of physicians. And these are actually efforts here at WashU they're trying to actively address is that, you know, if you really want to emotionally invest into a patient, that's exhausting. But now you have to do it 20, 30 times a day, each person coming up with different sets of complaints or even very similar complaints, but it manifests and impacts that patient differently. You know, how do you, you know, maintain your energy without feeling like, you know what, I'm, I just can't do any more today or this week, right? So the, these are system errors, as you brought up, Kelly, that um, I don't 100% know what the solution is, because obviously this is a financially driven decision. Right. And, you know, that's just one of the many barriers that we have uh, in terms of communication with our doctors. And I think, you know, now my, my medical system is very much everything is online now. So, like I said, anything I say to my one doctor gets translated to my next doctor. So if my medications have changed or anything, all of that stuff is really taken care of when I walk in and they just sort of review things with me. But I think what I've tried to do through my blog, I think what Tiffany and I have done through IFAA is to really help patients 
not really teach patients how to be a better patient, but to sort of empower them with skills that they can use to go into these situations. Mm -hmm. Because again, I know uh, I was lucky enough to attend the ACR, the annual event, the Capitol Hill Day. And the one rheumatologist I went with, he is new to the Philadelphia area. And he's only been in practice there a few months. And he said there's already a six-month wait for new patients. And when you think about that, that's six months of a patient not knowing what's wrong with them, reading lots of things from Dr. Google that scare them. <laughs> All those things, you know, really add to the whole emotional component. And I think that is a, a, a really important thing that patients have to really understand, too, that listening to people all day long talk about being in pain is draining. It's emotionally mm -hmm. draining. It truly is. Yeah. So I'll add, I think that what you just described with the blog and trying to teach patients how like skills, specific, like discrete skills that they can use in their doctor appointment is really important. And, and a lot of the, the field and the communication skills training literature focuses on this and improving communication in doctors. There's been a lot less on patient specific skills training. It's unclear to me why exactly, because communication is a two way street and mm -hmm. it needs two individuals, the patient and the doctor to, to work. And when we're talking about misalignment of goals, it's not that one, well, patient goal should be, this should be like the most important to, that's what I believe at least. Mm -hmm. But I think the giving patient skills to acknowledge and also, because doctors are people too, and they also want to be validated or affirmed or made their experience like relevant and knowing that like going back to the time like you know this is maybe they're not having the best day or something like that but that's something that the you know the patient is also responsible for uh, addressing as well mm -hmm. yeah. no that's that's interesting that you that you say that because one of our goals of this whole roomy rounds series <laughs> is so that we can collect enough information to develop tools and resources that solve the problems that we're talking about. And one of the things that we do as a pillar of objectives at IFAA is to utilize our experiences as people living with the diseases who have the opportunities to speak with doctors, who have the opportunity to go to the American College of Rheumatology meeting or ULAR, the European League Against Rheumatism. And then from that and all of the information we're collecting and inviting patients to listen to these and be part of the conversation, then we can begin to really use our backgrounds to teach. And, you know, Kelly has an educational background. I was a college teacher for eight years. Several people who are on uh, affiliated with, with our organization have backgrounds in teaching. So it's, we hope that that becomes a reality. That's part of this goal. But the bigger overarching goal of Rumi Rounds, as we said in the beginning, was really to open up the communication lines between doctors and patients so that we can address issues that both stakeholder parties are talking about. So, you know, patients talk to patients. And from that, we at IFAA have been able to identify some key issues and some key communication barriers, right, between what patients are expressing in this particular topic. Again, it's on office visits and doctors are talking to doctors, but we cannot solve the problems that exist between the communications if we do not put all parties at the same table to have a 
heartfelt discussion so we can understand what the other person, what the other the other stakeholder group is is feeling, dealing with. So I'd like to thank Dr. Kim, Jarek, and Kelly as we come all we all come to the table and uh, we're inviting you. So pull up a chair. It's time to have your voice heard. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 